Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B, 147. 147. It's a horrible, wintry, snowy day in Dublin. We are in the midst of our Top 20 countdown, as chosen by the Don, who's here with me. Hello, the Don. Morning, Captain. How are you? I'm all right. You know you're old, by the way, when you call a snowy day a horrible day. Well, it is. No, there's nice snowy days and horrible snowy days. I still call it horrible. See, like my this, like the days when it's like it's not sticking. You can't make snowmen. It's slushy. Your feet get wet and cold. It it doesn't stick. It's just shit. And actually, we have a yellow snow warning in Ireland today, <laughs> which is quite funny. The the RT weather forecast was rolling. Well, we have a yellow snow warning in effect for most of Ireland, and the, surely the warning is just don't eat it. <laughs> Yeah, but like, I, I don't like snow because it affects my life. It doesn't affect you. You're, you're not no. stuck anywhere. I get stranded if it's snowing. I can't drive over here. And yeah. snow is heavier where I live. But I mean, I got up this morning and the kids were looking out my daughter's window like, snow, snow. I was like, fuck, fuck. So I'm old. It's one of the greatest things about being a child when you're older was that day when you wake up and you haven't pulled your curtains in your bedroom and you can feel... It's really bright. It's so quiet. And it's, it's the bright. brightness. It's so yeah. white. And he goes, fuck. There's no school today. <laughs> so um, those of you who were listening to the last show, we had an election uh, in Ireland. Those of you who don't want to hear us warbling on can scroll forward 15 minutes, uh, which is where the meat of this podcast will start when the Don reveals who episode 18 is. But we had an election in Ireland. We did. We had a general election. And um, it was a seismic earthquake, a tsunami wave, a revolution. <laughs> All right, Irish Times. <laughs> so usually we have uh, two main parties, our civil war parties. For... Centre-right. Yeah. So they've been back and forth passing the baton for 100 years, basically. And for the first time, we have three parties that are fairly neck and neck. I think. Well, so what happened was that Sinn Féin, which is the former political wing of the IRA, and very divisive kind of party, absolutely came out of the traps like a storm and took a third of the vote and a third of the seats of the major parties uh, under the stewardship of a feisty woman called Mary Lou MacDonald. Let's phrase that a second way. What happened is Sinn Féin, which is a left-wing party, mm-hmm. came out of the traps and continue on. And I'm not, I'm not denying that it's not me saying, oh, stop with the IRA thing. But realistically, the reason people are getting their knickers in a twist is because it's a left-wing party. That That's the terror. That is why the stocks started dropping within a minute. You know, it's a. Well, no, you, know, you can't keep saying that. One of their elected senior members of Sinn Fein, that guy from Waterford or Tipton. Yeah. <laughs> he was in a pub and he's a very senior member. He's not some goofball they pulled in off the streets because they think they might be able to have a chance of getting more TDs. And he was calling the pub, singing IRA songs, talking about Chucky Garlaw, which is the famous rant about our day will come and we'll eventually get Northern Ireland back talking about the hunger strikers and we'd never forget them. That is a problem. Yeah, I think that's stupid. But I would also point out that there are members of the other two main parties that are frequently known to sing a rousing rendition of Come Out Your Black and Tans on a night out. This fucking Egypt hadn't the intelligence to know that every rag in the country is on the lookout for some TD. Well, every voter is. No, every, literally, as this election unfolded, Every Sinn Féin TD and every member of Sinn Féin should have been warned, listen, there are journalists from every fucking paper that are willing to pay any money 
to get a video of you singing yeah. in the pub and of you saying something raw like, don't do it. Yeah, but even that it. is wrong because they shouldn't have to say that because that means they actually do want to. And they no, that, no, actually, I, I would disagree. I would think that that's, it's, it's quite common. It's quite common in all walks of life in, in ours that after a few drinks, the raw songs will come out. They should have had more so the, pop the, on the, than the, to be walked into that situation. I mean, it was stupid, but I mean, we've all sung them. So for our overseas uh, listeners, the Sinn Féin is probably known by people like Jerry Adams and uh, Martin McGuinness. They were the they were the political wing of a terrorist organisation. I was never which, in the IRA. <laughs> which set up, uh, which uh, is part of the power sharing in Northern Ireland at the moment. And has never really had any traction down south, but suddenly it has arrived on the scene with a bang. You know, as they say, it has changed the face of Irish politics utterly. We're now in a situation where we're not sure who's going to go into government. The traditional parties say they don't want to work with Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin have got a mandate from the people. So it's all very exciting. It's all very exciting. What do you think is going to happen? Now, I would never ask you to disclose your private ballot, Sean. Yeah. But I'll share mine. I voted for Social Democrats. Who did you vote for? I voted for Sinn Féin. But I mean, I, like <laughs> I said, I, I, I never thought I'd see the day where I would vote for them. They do have blood on their hands, whether we like it or not. Oh, all the parties but do. But we have, well, yes, I know. We can, it's, it's, not, it's like saying, oh, well, all the parties do. Yeah, this one particularly does. Mm. And I voted for them because they were the only party that clearly was treating the homeless situation that we have in Ireland as an emergency yeah. and the health and the housing crisis. The other ones came at us with more of the same. Sorry, slowly, slowly, catchy. Yeah. Like, yeah, we know it's a problem, but we can't. Well, look, most of the and country, we have an emergency. Most of the country voted for them, not because they're voting for Sinn Féin. They voted for the only left-wing alternative yes. and we have because not. we've been hammered. And particularly my generation, the locked-out generation, you never had a hope in hell of buying property. So, like, when I'm 30, my generation, just when if you went to college and just as you're finishing your degree, we've been promised absolutely everything. We've been brought up in the Celtic Tiger. You work hard, you get your points, This, you do this, civil service, you do that. But there's a clear path laid out for you. And then suddenly, just as everyone my age was getting their degree, sorry, it's all gone to shit. There's no jobs for a lot of people that worked really hard. They had to emigrate. Those who did have jobs, even for stuff like teaching, by the way, it's no longer permanent and pensionable. It's going to be shitty pay, you're not going to be on the ladder in a couple of years. And on top of that, within five years of my generation graduating, when they, when they get to the age when they start, want to start saving for a house, oh yeah, that's not going to happen. A single person now earning 70 grand is not going to get a mortgage. So that's a problem. So if you're of my generation, mm. tough tits, you got locked out. And we've been told time and time again, we get this back and forth from the establishment, which are the centre-right parties. But on the one hand, we get this constant narrative that we're the Peter Pan generation, we won't grow up, we want things handed to us that we're immature, that we don't remember what happened, that we're idiots, that we're petty and childish, but we're actually the generation that haven't been allowed to grow up. Mm. Lots of us had to leave. Lots of people haven't had children because they're not in a position to, and the ones that have are burying them in their mom's house. People are sitting, living in their mother's box bedroom, working harder than any other generation alive at the moment has had to. I mean, we can say, well, 100 years ago, there's this. Actually, they've had to work a lot harder. And listening to people in their 60s who were part of the generation that fucked Why us over. Why do you say they've had to work harder? Because they don't, they, we don't, we have zero hours contracts. We don't have, okay. you don't walk into okay, a solid, so now, years ago, there were working class jobs. If you were a bus driver, if you were whatever, it might not be fantastic pay. You might have to work six days a work instead of five days a week, but you go, you do your job and you come home and you have a home and you can keep a family. That's not an option anymore. We're, we're not getting the solid permanent pensionable jobs with all, with all the benefits. 
we're having to work long hours and you don't get a house and then you're being and then if you're if you're in a position to if you're doing well enough that you can afford to pay rent grand but rent is ridiculous you can't you don't do a lifestyle not at all rent is just massive rent is three times what you would be paying on a mortgage for that property and there's not enough property to rent they're only the people who are lucky enough to be able to afford to rent there's no money left over and if anything goes wrong do not ring your fucking landlord or he'll have his nephew moving in next week which which just means he's putting it on the market again bumping it up for somebody else I mean, it's no surprise oh, why right. our I mean, generation said, like, and, and the other thing, when we're not being told we're the Peter Japan generation and it's being blamed on us, we're being told, yeah, we are going to sort it out. Just hang on a little longer. Just hang on a little longer. We're, all, we're in our 30s now. How much longer are we going to hang on? Well, that's why I jettisoned them, because there was no action. It was like, we're going to build 100,000 houses. We've built 13 so far this year. Just calm down. We're getting to it. And I didn't have either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael on my ballot. Mm. What we and, and this is interesting for people listening from around the world. We have a rise in populism going on in America, Britain, Brazil, Philippines. We have despotic leaders raising their heads again in previously safish democracies. We have a situation in Ireland, which would be an interesting microcosm, where literally the people have gone, we want a society that's not about neoliberal greed and profits and banks and we, we want a society that starts to look after its most vulnerable and starts to look after its people and I don't believe that's populism it's, we, we want to live in a society not an economy that is the line yeah, that my generation yeah. have handed out and actually interesting we do have some of those far right populists and every last one of them did not get a seat yeah. in fact they got embarrassingly they got like 100 votes in their constituencies so overwhelmingly the country to the, to the racist populist far right anti-immigrant hate, hate mongers the entire country went piss off. But it's interesting, interesting to see Peter Casey, who was a former guest on the show, who would be one of these far-right populist, Trump-like characters, divisive, racist. A guy I know, but I'm uh, uh, astonished, really, at his what was under the surface of his politics. But, I mean, he was he was wearing a flat cap and, uh, you know, bailing, to, holding up his suits with bailing time and Donegal trying to get elected, and they just sort of ran him out. Yeah, even Donegal said, ah, piss off. So it's not a populist rising, I don't think. And I think because a party came into power and literally there were people who were getting 200 votes in the previous election last year, suddenly getting 10,000 votes. Um, So a party and a brand came into power. And I think a lot of the people who are in on their coat are slightly thick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't believe we have a strength and depth within Sinn Féin to handle what needs to be handled. However... There are a few people at the top. Ona Brin, I think, would make a great housing minister. And Mary, I think, She's has to be yeah. a candidate for our first female prime minister. So Yeah, so the thing is, I mean, like that's the face of Sinn Féin at the moment. They've done a great job. And there's some really bright people in Sinn Féin. But there are also a lot of thick fucking idiots in Sinn Féin. And I was hanging around them 15 years ago. So I know, like, that fucking idiot. It's not even the fact that he sang a rass song, which we all do. It's the fact that he was stupid enough to do yeah. it. And be, knowing this is exactly the narrative that the rass is going to want to push out. If you're that fucking stupid that you ha- you weren't savvy enough not to send out that image, mm. how are you going to get on in the government? But I do. Th- I, I think Finnegan are the only party that are intelligent enough to run the country well in terms of economy. Yeah. But they don't give a shit about poor people. A certain generation, and particularly people who are doing well, kind of are in amazement saying, "Look, look, we know Finnegan haven't done right by you. We know that, but like you're going to crash the economy. You can't let Sinn Fein in." And the part that I think some people aren't getting is. We're better off if the economy crashes. 
that would be great for us at <laughs> my generation. Great, because the only thing that's happened that's changed between now and the height of austerity, we're not really any better off. We're still taxed yeah. up the wazoo. You weren't taking like, along. They've, they've they've thrown back a few, maybe a fiver on the uh, house so, prices will collapse. Yeah, their house Rents prices are massive. And so and like we we'd be we're fucking were grand. with the idea that oh my god, house prices are collapsing. That's a disaster. And like we brilliant. need our house prices to collapse. But the number one thing that's hurting people financially is the housing crisis. Yeah. So basically, we can continue on as shitty as we are now, except you might be able to afford housing. And even if you're doing well at my generation, you're going to be paying at least two thirds of your income on rent. Oh no, you've taken away my biggest cost. Yeah. Okay. So fucking suits us down to the ground. It may not suit people above a certain wealth threshold and above a certain age for the economy to crash. But the part they're not getting is they didn't look after our generation. They pushed us so far that we're like, Okay, bring it on. Crash the economy. Yeah, so our, buy a house. our government have been basically paranoid about looking after the wealthy and the rich companies and the banks and they don't pay any tax and the poorer people in society, middle class, the working class are left with the burden as per austerity days. So anyway, a brave new dawn and we will see what sort of a fist they make of it. And sure, the worst case scenario is they fail and sure the other guys are great at failing as well. So, you know, at least we give someone else a try at it. Anyway, uh, what else has been happening? We have uh, we had the Oscars. We did. Parasite won, which was great. Didn't see the Oscars, well, didn't well see the worth, film. Well worth a look. I watched it about six months ago and I was going, that's fucking brilliant. And it's the first ever foreign language movie to win an Oscar. What else is happening? The other big news, of course, is that, and we don't actually have a bottle uh, to uh, celebrate. Normally the Don brings a bottle, but she's, Drinking a Kong. Uh, <laughs> it's little. It called it's called Kong, Kong Strong. Strong. It's a Kong Strong is a little uh, rip off of Red Bull that costs a quarter of the price. Um, today is uh, our third anniversary together. Which I know. Is, uh, it's a long time for you to be going out with a complete Egypt. I form. <laughs> I form. <laughs> Yeah, so the only reason Shawnee B is stuck in Dublin uh, for the last three years and for the foreseeable is because of um, you want to cross from me here. Uh, it's been a good three years. It's been on the one hand, it's been it's gone very quickly. On the other hand, we've gone a lot in. Yeah, it's weird. Like it has gone quickly, but when you look through it, you're going to go, "Oh, that's weird." It's only three years. So happy anniversary, love. Happy anniversary, thanks, hon. And uh, we're in the middle of writing our first movie together as well. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Don't hold your breath though. Anyway, um, now we're on to the day's proceedings. We have a top 20 countdown. The Don has gone through all the episodes of A Pint with Johnny B, which was a, something that she said she was going to do without probably thinking of it properly. But she's done it, and she's got her own top 20. They're in no particular order, but they're a good place to start listening to the podcast if you have been meaning to or haven't quite caught up with it or you know or someone who didn't know what podcasts were and now that podcasts are everywhere you you're you're on the case so what the we have a little game that we play where the don asks me three questions about the guests she's picked this week and see if i remember them okay question number one and this is a quote there was a world to see and i wanted to see it uh, i'd say a lot of people said that actually words to that effect who actually said it no okay the next one is in re- response to your what would you say to your younger self question which you always ask which is this person's response was I don't know except have faith in the cycle of life and just relax and trust that goes for everything from finding the job the partner the road that's right for you 
you don't get to play the yes or no game show. That's after. If you don't get right. it, there are tougher questions. I'll give you your three yes or no. Okay, no. Okay, and the third hint is ideas are like entities floating around, and if you're willing to accept them, you can go on amazing journeys. Mother Sophia? No. Okay, I don't know. Okay, now you can play your yes or no game it's show. It's a woman, though, right? There are those quotes. That's a there. yes. Okay, you're on to okay. two. <laughs> no, tell me. Okay, fine. Jean Curran. Oh, Jean Curran. Yes, Jean Curran is uh, mad. She she she's fearless. She went in her twenties, I think. She went to Africa. So Jean's a photography, a photo- photographic artist, and she's done some really crazy stuff. Like she went to, I think, Kenya and Ghana, embedding herself into societies, taking pictures, living in mud huts. You know, six or seven years ago, she went to Afghanistan to find some old man who is the last remaining guy who paints sepia onto paintings and she photographed American soldiers there and got this treatment done and had to go to Dubai like she's she just goes for it um Jean is everything I'm not <laughs> yes she is oh <laughs> like she's demented demented I mean fair play to her wouldn't be me would not be me traveling around the world I mean like on she, her own I know the on your own part would be great because I mean no, that part is like that's. I could see you under the wheel of a tank, cowering like a little kitten, crying. No, you see, as you're that, that's unfair. No, no, because the dawn, yeah, yeah. But if you're, if I'm actually in danger, I tend to be fine about it. Yeah. If there's a reason to panic, I'm absolutely fine. I'm really cool and collected. I manage things. In fact, it gets a bit warped the level of my bravery when I'm in actual danger. Mm. However, traveling around the world getting icky and dirty, having to meet people all the time. Like, I mean, yeah, you're on your own, but that means you have to socialise constantly because you know, you're going to have to do it in different... Jesus, I'd be fucking worn out. And some of these th- things that she did were really cool, but I noticed the fine print. Like, when you to get to these gold mines, did it involve hiking up half a fucking mountain on the way? Oh, yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> like, like, there's no probably, amount of sentence spray. My makeup could be melted. She probably ate beetles. Jesus, like I wouldn't be into it. So anyway, no, but like joking aside, there's a massive bravery there. It's a great lesson for anybody in bravery and in not letting fear hold you back. Yes, when I when I when I have the sort of log line of people who've led brave, creative, interesting lives. I think out of the whole podcast she the, wins. This one fits the bill. Without further ado, we give you number eighteen on the Don's top twenty countdown. This is the lovely Jean Kerr. Folks, we're in one of the newest art galleries in Dublin. It is called Station House Art Gallery. It's located in Dorky, one of the nicest villages in County Dublin. You know, those of you who listen regularly to my show, that it is about people who have led brave and creative and interesting lives. If there was somebody who met that criteria full on, it would be my guest today. She is one of Ireland's foremost contemporary photo-based artist. She's also an, uh, has been a photojournalist. She doesn't take no for an answer and is extremely driven when it comes to executing and delivering on her vision. And I think that's the reason she's here today. She's also a great friend of mine. Her name is Jean Curran. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Is this your first podcast? Yes. Oh, okay. And so. I'm delighted to be... Um Popping my cherry with you. <laughs> She's popping her cherry uh, in, in the gallery, cherry. which is, uh, I think this this um, gallery is showing your work f- 
for the next two weeks or so. Yeah. The, the gallery is surrounded by beautiful, almost Rothko-esque prints are, that, that have been done in the photo lab. So they look like art, but they're actually photographs. Correct. And it's really hard to explain what you do, but it's a dye transfer method, which is one of the oldest ways of developing photography. But why don't you tell me what this gallery is showing up and what we're seeing around us? What we're looking at is 15 prints, which I have made using the dye transfer um, method. Dye transfer was one of the first methods of making a full-colour photographic print, and it's the same process by which Technicolor made their inglorious Technicolor movies. It's a fair to say it's a dying art, right? Oh, it, it's pretty much dead. Pretty much dead. So Gina's <laughs> trying to re- resuscitate it in a studio in London? Yes, correct. What you seem to do is, you, 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 every two years, you come out with something very different. You're not an artist that sits on her laurels and continues to churn out the same stuff. Why is that? I think it's been a journey right. to get to where I am now. I started off as a photojournalist. I was really interested in photojournalism. I used to open magazines and newspapers and I couldn't, you know, I got really excited about the imagery. I used yeah. to look at the New York Times every day to see what their leading photo was. And I used to follow the photographers. Um, Did you know James Nachtaway? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We were trying to use him in a Gillette ad. We? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he would. Well, he, yeah, we were, yeah, we, we probably wouldn't. <laughs> I like the way he used to wear a white shirt. Mm. This is what intrigued us. We were thinking like that he would get ready to go out. James Noctaway is possibly one of the most famous. He's the greatest war photographer that ever lived. War photographer. But he used to wear this pristine white shirt so that all the soldiers who were fighting each other as he would walk down the street would, oh, that's the photographer guy. And he would get these amazing shots. You did some amazing shots over in, was it Kenya? Yeah. That, was, would that have been your, your breakout album? Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, my first, I suppose, breakout was when I went to Ghana and I did a project on the illegal gold mining sector. And that was really a project that I planned myself. I got a grant for, I brought a journalist with me. I wanted to go out and, and do this. And I knew that it, had, it was something that hadn't really been covered before. Now, to those listening, you were what age when you did this? Early 20s? Yeah, like maybe 24. What, what makes you go... You know what I'm going to do? Now bear with me. I'm going to go and do. I'm, I'm going to an Irish girl. I'm going to go over to Ghana and photograph the mining industry over there. What made you pick that? I had that idea for for ages. Where does it come from? Um, well, now we're going on to a completely different topic right. because I mean, what we're really talking about is the power of an idea and knowing when you have an idea and yeah. actually being gifted ideas. Mm. Ideas are literally like entities that float around the place, yeah. and if you're lucky enough. to if you're willing to accept them. I agree with that. That's, then you can go on amazing journeys. But, but did one night you were just lying there, I know, gold mining in Canada. Where, does the, where do you think the idea germinates in you? Um, I remember asking myself, where did gold come from? And then doing a little bit of research into it and then kind of looking at other photographic bodies of work and um, went off and did it. And I was also started looking at the stock markets and I remember at the time, some countries all of a sudden were buying like huge amounts of, yeah. of gold. And I was like, there's something in this. <laughs> Let's go. I read somewhere that there's the, the amount of gold ever mined out of the earth would fit under the Eiffel Tower. It's a lot less than diamonds. Yeah. Mad. So you go to Accra, do you? Is that where you went? Yeah, Ghana? well, we went to Accra and then there's like a gold belt, basically. Right. So we went to about five or six different towns. But I mean, if you roll into these towns... 
and you are go look for somebody that might be able to help you with a contact in the mine but all they do is like kind of go follow me and then you trek for two and a half hours up the side of a mountain and all of a sudden you come out of a clearing where there's just like men scattered all over it with no shirts on and just like working in the in the scorching heat um with pickaxes and carrying canvas bags of rock down mountains on their heads like everything is very you know primitive and artisanal and uh, they go come on we'll take you down the tunnel and you get into a tunnel that's been made are you scared at this stage well i'll tell you now what happened we got into they were like let's go into the tunnel and the tunnel is really you know it's a tunnel that's been created through by men with pickaxes and chipping away at it over for years so we crawled along and you go down little bits and you go around corners and you're crawling along and I don't know how many... You've got many. camera equipment. Yeah, I've got a camera, around, right? yeah. yeah. And they've got torches, like really primitively with elastic bands and bits of string tied around their heads. And but surely bits. at some point when you're down in that thing, you're going, oh, gee, this was a bad idea. I'll tell you when, this, <laughs> when that moment happens. The journalist was with me and we came to a point and we had been in the tunnel now crawling along for maybe half an hour, Okay. And at the end of it, you had to get down into what was like a little bunny hole and crawl along. I looked at it and I went, if I get down there, I'm not going to be able to get back up. I'm not going to be able to pull myself up. It was such a narrow little shaft. Now, these men are up and down there every day. They have no hassle. I was with these two guys. The journalist went ahead with the other two guys. And I was with these two guys and they were like, we wait here. And I was like, no, we'll just go back. And they were like, no, no, we'll wait here. So next thing, one of them takes out a bit of newspaper, as they do, and he starts rolling a joint in the tunnel. Right. Okay? So I'm sitting in the tunnel. These two guys, it's pitch dark. Yeah. Okay? Next thing, we can hear somebody coming along, singing, and a man comes out of nowhere, carrying two sticks of dynamite. Right. He doesn't have a torch. He uh, talks to the other two guys. They're laughing about the fact that I'm in the tunnel. And he has a little smoke off the joint, and he goes on. And I'm like... Joint tunnel dynamite. dynamite. This is not where I want to be. This is just a recipe for disaster. And I don't want to be the one that's freaking out here, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable. I just want to go. And they were just like, what's the big deal? Yeah, I, you know, that some of those photographs you captured there are just beautiful port- portraits of, of people and just yeah. the sort of strength of them and the resilience of them. and You'd think that they would have been posed and that they would have taken you would have taken hundreds or whatever. I suppose you did, but they're they're they're, they're magnificent. Thank you. Um, and so there'll be a link to that on the in the blurb on the website. So you know, most people who would do something like that would say, "Well, that's got that out of my system," um, and uh, get back to Waterford, where she's from. You're from a, a little village outside Waterford, which is in the south east of Ireland. Tell me a little bit what it was like growing up down there. I grew up in a farm. I'm the third daughter out of four. Four of us born in four and a half years. Um, That's lived... called Irish quad, quads, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, um, it was very isolated, actually. No one ever like called in for me to come out and hang out in yeah. my life. But I loved living in the countryside up until, the, up until a point. Yeah. And then there was definitely a bit of wildness in me. And if I got out of the house and I was got into Waterford City to stay with my friends, you know, getting me home was a different story altogether. But I'm very, very grateful for, you know, there's a great amount of um, mischievousness, um, mischievousness, Mischievousness. thank you. And, uh, but 
also innocence that goes with growing up in the heart of the country. And my dad made us all work on the farm at, at different points. And I really appreciate that work ethic that that instilled. But when I was ready to go, I was ready to go. Right. And then I stayed away for quite a while. And now I want nothing more than to be back there living in amongst the fields. Right. Great. Do you feel you've got a lot of it out of your system? Um, I can't when you say you say... want to go back to the field... So first of all, I suppose, why... why what were the sort of drivers that said, I've got to get out of here? Was it to see the world? Oh, or? big time. Right. I mean, like, there had to be more going on than uh, yeah. where I was living. There was a world to see, and I wanted to see it. Right. Um, I never really felt like I, f- I slotted into groups that were going in a particular way. The I college route. Yeah, like, um, even when, when I finished school and my friends were all going to off to live in Paris together or Amsterdam together I went off and I lived on my own in Canada and then I lived on my own here and then I lived I always was interested in kind of just doing my own thing and I wanted to yeah see the world on my own terms I suppose and right. explore it in my own way also learn my own lessons and, and pick myself up after them and I was always interested in art in school however I did a very poor leaving search and I never applied it myself in school whatsoever look when I went to the career guidance sister and I asked her about doing photography. She said the points were too high. Here's a form for nursing, yeah, you know, and that was it. <laughs> like so, it was carve your own path. It's a it's a recurring theme in, in these podcasts that nearly everybody has either gone, you know, had really bad advice from parents or from career guidance or from teachers, and anyone who had this spark in them, people try and quench it out and go, you know, you. Go into banking. Be- become a bank teller. Yeah. You know, like don't, 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 don't try and do anything outside your station. If my father told me to go down and join the guards one more time, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> she would have been a bank guard, by the way. That means female guard. That's an Irish term. So you you were doing photojournalism. Is is the next stop that we want to talk about the the Afghanistan thing, or is there anything in between? There's well, I worked for the Irish Press here, and right. then I realised that I was never going to have the front cover of Time magazine if I stayed working for the Irish Star and, yeah. and the Irish Independent. Did you find that the editors were also very conservative with their sort of photo selection? All the photographs that appear in most of the Irish papers are pretty much the same. Photographers aren't brands here. And money's not really invested uh, invested into photographers. Yeah. But it's one of the best educations you can get. Right. If I can't go out to certain areas where someone's been shot in Dublin and go out and cover it and go with a journalist who is approaching people on the street, then I have no business going out to Kenya or um, Afghanistan or anywhere else. So you found you were able to see and perceive that this was a good training, but it was still limiting you yeah would that be fair yeah so that's so what was the next jump moved to Kenya then (laughs) (laughs) so why did you move to Kenya I moved to Kenya because many of the photojournalists that I followed uh, that were working for Time Magazine Newsweek um, the New York Times all were based in Kenya really yeah when I'd looked them up because it's got an international airport Nairobi uh, yeah uh, it's a UN city there's lots going on there so did you just move there? Or did you I literally arrived at 11.30 at night with two bags. I didn't even have a hotel. What did your books. parents say? Um, like, loads of people said I was mad, but right. you're like, I wasn't listening to anybody. I was just going. Yeah. You know? And did you know anyone there? No. Right, so you just... Arrived. Okay, okay. and so what happened? 
I got a taxi downtown and got into a hotel and had a fight with the taxi driver <laughs> arguing over like five dollars or something and then I got up the next day and I was like okay I live here now you know you're gonna have to make it work I can't even How remember how much money did you have with you um I didn't have a huge amount of money right but like I had a couple of grand a couple of grand okay you had a hotel room yeah and you had your cameras yeah what I did is I actually ended up ringing Goal, you know, the oh, Irish, yeah, the yeah. Irish and they said, come in and see us. And I went in to see them and they said, do you know that there's an Irish journalist who's just after arriving out here as well? He's come out to work as the East African correspondent for the Irish Times. Right. I said, no. So then I, I met up with him and then we started doing a little bit of work together and that was great. And then learning, being introduced to more journalists and photojournalists through that. And we ended up renting an apartment together. But I was really unhappy in Nairobi. I knew because I was surrounded by much bigger photojournalists and I was never going to get the jobs. And not only that, I was looking at their lifestyle and I really started to question whether it was for me. So it's a hard drinking correspondence club from what I gather from Asia. I mean, there was always a place where all the journals and photo photographers all hung out and it was male and it was, is that, was that the same thing? It was a little bits of it. Yeah. But more than that, I just felt that I don't want to go and witness all the worst things that are happening in the world on my own and stay in really shit hotels along the way. This idea of these middle-class white people with cameras that cost I don't know how much going into these areas and actually creating this representation of what it is like to be somebody for somebody else's life. Yeah. And that started to make me quite unsettled. I realised that there was a huge kind of hole in the system. Um, I also knew that my ideas were a lot more conceptual. So I moved to the coast where there was no photojournalists in Mombasa where all the pirate stories were happening. Yeah. Now I was really interested in the pirates. That's bad pirates. It's yeah. not Johnny Depp pirates. No, really bad pirates yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I started going around interviewing people that had been kidnapped by pirates. But you're, you're, also like, in, you're also a blonde yeah. woman in a Muslim country. <laughs> did you burka up or did you... No. No, so you're, 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 you're amongst these pretty violent dudes who you know, are, are, are often portrayed, whether it's real or not, as, as being reasonably... Crazy. Crazy, to, especially towards women. I mean, where does the sort of little tremble of fear come into all this? Is this not there? I have this thing. You need to be aware of, of what you're doing and you need to be responsible for yourself. Yeah. However, it's too easy to allow fear to control you. It's imaginary. Yeah. You know, so if you're going to imagine things, imagine something creative and imagine something positive out yeah. of it. Don't be a fool when you're walking down the street. You know, make sure that, you know, you're protecting yourself. Yeah. However, don't allow fear to hold you back because at the end of the day, before I went to Kenya, everyone was like, oh, and then this thing happened, somebody, and then that. Yeah. And I just didn't listen to any of it. I decided I was going and I was going to be okay. I took care of myself when I was there, but I wasn't going to let the, the possibility of the what ifs stop me. And um, I went out and nothing happened to me. But you're also an appreciator of other people's cultures. And mm. at what point did you make the decision not to uh, work with their customary habits, failing yourself and covering when I When I moved to Mombasa, which is 98% Muslim, there's a lot of like African Arabs. Yeah. The Africans don't cover their heads. Yeah. I didn't. Too hot. Yeah. And I, but I mean, like, I ended up following and kind of living with a Muslim family for about six months where I followed their 11-year-old daughter around and photographed her. I met her one night on the street. She came up and tried to sell me samosas and I just thought she was just 
the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and she was wearing this kind of like raggedy skirt but I was I just wanted to know for myself that you're fed all these representations of Africa all the time you know and here's this little girl on busy streets going around selling food you know what must her life be like and you're constantly told oh the poor the poor Africans and I just wanted to know for myself so I asked for the following evening to meet me at the same place and she never came back and then I waited that evening I waited the following evening I waited the following Mm -hmm. evening and then eventually the waitress in the cafe went okay we've had enough of this we're going to go find her well it was one of those occasions where you have one woman with you and then before you know it there's two other women and then you go to the night market you ask in the night market and then before you know it three women come and follow you from the night market and before you know it there's a crowd of you walking down the street looking for this girl who's after giving you a fake name and you like eventually find the house and meet the mother and yeah and then just ended up becoming friends with them so and tell me it was in Mombasa is it in the it was in a little town called Matwapa 10 kilometres north from Mombasa okay I'm getting bamboozled <laughs> sorry right, so you go up to this little girl's door <laughs> now just put yourself in an Irish tiny Irish village and some photographer from wherever comes up and goes hey I want to photograph your little girl and you and whatever what did she say the mother they, they were fine and they let you stay with them I would come and go from the house all the time. I didn't like, I didn't ever really want to overstay my welcome, so yeah. I would like stay in a cheap guest house down the road. But I basically came and I like, I, you know, celebrated Eid with them. Fatima, the mother, her brother got married, you know, and it was up the further up the coast. I went with the family and we all went up to the Muslim wedding, which was like the Sharia law in this part of the yeah. town. Like everyone's there, the men, the women, and all of a sudden you walk into a room and all the men leave. Yeah. And they go celebrate the wedding in another house, and you yeah. stay with the women. And so, what came became of this? Did you have like a was were you doing sort of a diary, a docu diary type? Thing? I found yeah, and I put together a beautiful body of work. However, when it came to going around and showing it to editors, they would always kind of go, "But like, what's wrong with her life?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and at the time. I didn't know enough about putting kind of conceptual narrative bodies of work together. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that it actually could have made a beautiful book. Yeah. I just went around to editors and they were like, but what's wrong with her? Yeah. And I was like, well, actually, it's just to pretty much show that although they're not wealthy, their life is very, very rich. Yeah. Lots of things have been decided for her already in life. And they were like, okay, well, maybe something will happen. And if something happens, her... It's extremely sh- short-sighted because... like. The most popular shows that, and with the longest longevity have been soap operas, which are like, yeah, something's wrong with everyone's life, but it's kind of day-to-day, you know, uh, eye on what we all live, you know? Yeah. It's almost like a documentary. And here we have something that's completely outside the pale, literally. And, um, you know, also for things like the way we're in, a, we're in a situation right now with Islam, and we kind of, it's all covered by, everyone has a sort of the same kind of, pigeonhole that they put Muslims into and there's kind of lots of different types of Muslims out there is there any hope for resurrecting that? Yeah I I would love to Mm. Um, and it's some of the work that I was most proud of but I would love to go back and and visit them again Do you still stay in touch with her? I have What age is she now? Um, She is 20 or something? No she's 16 Okay Yeah so I hope she's still in school I don't know if she's still in school but I've been friends with her older sister on, on Facebook and things. What's your take just looking at that experience of your life on the whole Africa? Because you've done Ghana and you've done, you've done both sides of the continent. What did you take out of Africa? I absolutely love Africa. However, it's exhausting when you're there on your own. Yeah. Um, because while 
the aid culture has done a lot of good it's also done a lot of bad so when the minute people see a white person coming they assume that you've got loads of money and yeah. so there's like the white person price and the the african price people are never really going to learn to help themselves if they're never given the opportunity to help themselves and there's such a system of corruption and there's such a system of people coming in then to like help out although you know the government's really corrupt but there'll always be some aid agency that comes in then and mm-hmm. does that and and it's it's hard there's an initiative that's lost there however you meet young young africans and the new burgeoning kind of middle class of africans and my god the potential in tech yeah. the potential in in computer science just everything huge amount of initiative and potential yeah. we're sitting on the cusp of a major famine which the world is of course ignoring in south sudan somalia even ethiopia is talking yemen. about going off in yemen one of the things I heard, and I, I've only been to South Africa and, and, uh, and Egypt, and I haven't been into the sort of um, the, the great middle, but that this thing I keep hearing is that we tend to call it Africa, and they hate, oh, yeah. they hate that because it's like, it's like calling Europe, you know, and not, not appreciating the diff, different countries, different yeah. cultures, difference between Dr. Congo and Rwanda and Burundi and Nigeria and Angola. Yeah. And, they're all their own separate thing with their own separate problems. Yeah. But we all think, oh, it's all about famine and malaria and AIDS and blah, blah, blah. That's the way Africa is. And sort of, you know, trying to, one of the things I, I like about, the, uh, and maybe we can talk about this, it's a theme in your life, in your work, in my view, that you you always try and get to the human actuality of on the ground rather than the generality of, of what people say about a place. Is that fair? Yeah, I have I'm very little interest in, in taking a photograph of somebody and going back and being like, this is what their life looks like. Look at this poor person yeah, here. Yeah, I have no interest in that. So we're going to move on to Afghanistan. So now, not content with going to dangerous Mombasa, Mozambique, uh, Kenya and uh, Ghana and uh, gangland killings in Ireland... <laughs> um, when I met Jean, she, was, uh, she had this idea to go to... Afghanistan. We're now coming back to collide with this new approach to painting and photography. That there was this old method of colouring paintings or photographs. Sorry, uh, when they were we were only in the black and white era. So there was you know, you'll see them probably those old sort of sepia tone with with some colour put onto them. Yes. What, what's it called? Um, well, they're just hand tinted. Hand tinted. So anyway, I met you. I met you. Too. Yeah, I want to go over to Afghanistan, right in the middle of the war, and I want to find this guy who was a very famous pan painting a painter guy that she found out. Tell let's you tell the story because you tell it better. When I was in Kenya, people used to say, "Oh, you got to go to Afghanistan if you want to make it as a photojournalist." <laughs> oh, that's where you go. Apparently, it was great crack. Right. Apparently, there was loads of parties, loads of money, loads going on. But I was watching the photographs that were coming out of Afghanistan, and I was like. It's basically just a one-sided war that we got to see. You had the American soldiers, some British soldiers. The coalition of the willing. Yeah. And then it was like, guys with black beards are bad, you yeah. know? That's it. And then women are treated appallingly. And that was kind of it over the course of, the com- course of it. But what I, I did a master's. And while I was doing my master's, I was really looking for an idea. And I had this idea, and I just felt that this idea was perfect for me at the time but also I thought that there was a lot of strength in the idea and the idea was to go to Afghanistan 
photograph soldiers that were out there and then get an afghan to hand paint the images and when i first brought this to people everyone was like you've got to be kidding me there's no <laughs> way you're going to afghanistan b how could you do that to those soldiers well those soldiers have done nothing to you how could you do that and i was like wait a minute what makes you think that this is going to be a negative what makes you think that the Afghan person that's going I to paint them? Pun there. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> um, why? Why do you think that? You know. It, yeah. What was their angle there? Don't know. I mean, like, obviously, there's been however many hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Afghanistan for the last for thirteen yeah. years. You yeah. know. Um, and the Russians before. Them. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Anyway, they assumed that the the outcome was going to be was going to be negative. Um, but anyway, I, it wouldn't leave me go. It, I knew that, that I had this idea and this idea was not leaving me off the hook right. it was almost like it was my duty to, to do this right. and it wasn't until I met my partner Shane Whelan and I after a few too many espresso martinis one night in Copenhagen was like I have this idea <laughs> and he was like not a chance sweetheart and then <laughs> I was like and then I stuck with the idea and I would bring it up and eventually he was like well if it's a just put some structure on it, write it down, and, and yeah. we'll see what we can do. But one of the things that I needed is I needed a media organisation to give me a letter to get on Embed, and nobody would give me the letter. Um, I'm not surprised. I mean, because they giving you, well, no, giving you the letter means so, a certain sense of responsibility for, for your life. Yeah, well, yeah. the repatriation of my body in the event yeah. of something. <laughs> That's expensive shit. Yeah, that is expensive shit. And, um, but... Yeah, no one would give it to me, and and but more so, I felt that people wouldn't give it to me because I, I'm a woman, and yeah, you know. And well, I I still think, man or woman, it's a, it, you're walking into a war zone. Uh, it, it probably was a bit. I like think the, when you're a girl and you come up along these things on your own, and you start to see how people are like, oh, would you ever just go home and just behave yourself? Kind yeah. of attitude, like stop being so patronising. This is a really yeah. good idea, and there's merit to my idea, but you're not even paying attention to my idea. Yeah. You're just going. I would you. I would you just like cop onto yourself? You know. Notions. Yeah. So basically, what happened was she went over and got an embed into the uh, U.S. Uh, ISAF headquarters. Yeah, the ISAF headquarters. Yeah. She photographed a lot of the personnel, not all Americans, some different nationalities. Yeah, right? yeah. She went then out of Kabul. You have to find a fixer and someone to drive you around. So first of all, when you arrived, arrived in Kabul, what was that like? That was crazy, and it was so <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I'll tell you what was really funny was that I arrived in Kabul and I was expecting the fixer to meet me at the airport. But now explain what a fixer is. A fixer is somebody on the ground that's going to help you get around and a help local. you translate. Yeah. yeah. And I expected him to meet me at the airport and there was nobody there. And there was all of this kind of like group of Afghan men in typical Afghan clothing. They were all kind of standing around and I was there for ages and I was like, where is this guy? And of course my, my mobile phone didn't work there. So I went up to them and I was like, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> can I borrow somebody's phone? <laughs> and they were like looking at me like I had 10 heads. And I, they were like, what? And I was like, and I, can I call on your phone, this number? Call it. And I called him and he was like, oh, you're not allowed to come into the airport. You have to come out to a gate. And I'm out at this gate. So I went down and met him. And um, we had a bit of time before I was scary. going on, on in bed. No, but when you walk home, like, you know, there's guys with Kalashnikovs. So this the is a, this, these guys would be, the, the Taliban is controlling Kind of, no, yeah, or I mean, like, under the, under the you don't know who's who. Right. That's the who, that's right. what they say. 
you don't know who's looking out, who who is. I mean, like, it's not like. So what is it? A beepy, dusty, noisy. Yeah. Donkeys, old taxis. Old taxis. Like not not so much the donkeys and camels. It's a big, busy, dusty city where there has been new development and signs of really old war. Right. Lots Um, of ruins and bombed out. Ruins. And then what you soon start to notice is that the air quality is so bad, is so poor. But you also start to notice glimmers of... I remember seeing this young girl who was like, you know, pushing the boundaries as much as she could and like wearing her scarf barely on the back of her head, full face of makeup, you know, and like right. walking down the street. And, and the fixer was saying, in this, we're passing by a stadium and going in this stadium now, this very famous women's boxing club. And it's also where the Taliban used to bring people and, and give execute them, them, yeah, execute yeah. them in front of crowds. And that was not so long ago. Right. So the project itself was a two-stage process. So she flies into Kabul, she gets into the headquarters, she photographs men and female, male and females, uh, military. Yeah. She then has to fly out to Dubai. Why? To process the film, to develop the film and to make the prints. Right. So there's not exactly state-of-the-art photo development uh, studios in Kabul. So she's got to fly out to Dubai, then you've got to get the prints, and then you've got to do what? Uh, go back. <laughs> go back <laughs> <laughs> and this was even more uh, tricky, I guess, because you, you didn't have the comfort of, of um, staying in the, in the army headquarters, right? Yeah. So tell me about the return. Well, when I returned, I was meant to go to Herat in the West to meet some painters that were going to paint the photographs. However, I knew in my heart of hearts that it was not the right thing to do. So when I arrived back, because I had seen this photo that had been hand-painted, and I knew that it would have been hand-painted by somebody in the town of Mazar-i-Sharif, and that the name of the studio was Tegan Studios. And I had carried this photo with me for years. I had saved it on my phone. And when I arrived back into Kabul and I met the fixer... Same guy? Yeah. Right. Uh, he said to me, oh, our flight is like in two hours or whatever. I said, what I need you to do is I need you to get on the phone, ring everybody you know in Mazari Sharif and find out if you can find this place, Tegan Studios. And I, he was like, I think we need to ring Shane, you know, your partner. And I was like, no, 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 there's no ringing Shane. I'm on the ground. This is what we're doing. So he got on the phone, he rang around and he, somebody said to him, yes, I know somebody that's a master at this. I said, great, that's all we need. Let's change the flight. We're going to Mazari Sharif. So then we needed to organize a drive. Tell me what Mazari Sharif is. Mazari Sharif is a town in, in northern Afghanistan, very much a Taliban stronghold. The Hazari people, um, a tribal people that were up, are from that region, were really persecuted now by the Taliban. And when I got up there, I heard some really like, tragic, terrible stories there would be very little money put into the place. And it's northern and it's... Um, when you get into the airport, you're not allowed... Cars are not allowed to come in. People are not allowed to go into the airport for security purposes. So you walk out and you're just on a dirt track and there's men there in the middle. You know, it's dark. And, you know, a car comes towards you and you can see by the car lights that there's men there with, like, RPGs strapped to their backs. And there's just, like, you know... RPG being... Uh, rocket propeller Rocket propeller grenades. Of course, sorry. <laughs> How silly of me for not knowing that. Um, and yeah we met the driver Rahula and um, he brought us to a hotel where there was more security with RPGs and you know big gates and but I felt like I was in the right place right so <laughs> remember folks she's on her own here she, she's reliant and trusting this one guy that we've, they found as her fixer 
He's gone with you. Is he now <laughs> saying this is really stupid that you're, you're changing your plan? No, no, no I think he was excited. Right. You know, and I was excited and we were just going to go for it. So she basically has one piece of a photograph that she's had in her phone for years and she's trying to find somebody who knows the artist who painted the photograph or some of him and she thinks he's here and then what happens? Then what happens is, is that Rahula, the fixer, and Rahula, the driver, and I get in the car the next morning and we go to meet this guy that's apparently the master. We meet him and he's a young fellow. He would sketch portraits rather than paint in um, photographs the way that I wanted. And uh, so we realised he wasn't the guy. So he sent us to somebody else. That studio wasn't open and he wasn't the guy. And so then somebody else sent us to somebody else. So we went to that person. And at one point I take out my phone and I'm showing um, somebody the pictures. And Rahula, the driver, asks Rahula, the uh, fixer, were they photographs? And we said, yes. And he said, I know somebody, get in the car. So we got in the car and we drove along and there was a man sitting outside a shop. And the minute I saw him, I knew this is the guy. I just knew. Yeah. And he was the guy. He was the guy. And tell his story. His name was Muhammad Kareem, and it turns out he sat into the car, and I said, can you paint these? And he looked at the picture, and he went, they're my pictures. My and God. I was like, it just, and he said, I can do it, and straight away wanted to do the deal. And I had no problem doing a deal with him. He went off then, he hadn't painted or used his paints or anything in 30 years. And he went off, and he got his paints, and he came back and met us in the hotel where we were staying. And he put all the prints out, and he started sat down, and he put his paints out, and he started painting. And what, what, what did he like? So someone from Ireland has arrived with a mobile <laughs> phone, and it's his painting. Well, it actually turned out that it was a picture of his deceased brother that I'd been carrying around, and wow. his brother had been a great photographer and a great painter also, and but he had been killed by the Mujahideen in the eighties and that um, they had run that studio together and um, over the course of three days all these stories started coming out you know he started off with such excitement and talking about painting and how he used to do things and the following day brought in lots of his of his pictures and and then on the third day really started to I think you know kind of become a bit overwhelmed by sadness about all that hasn't happened in life and about lamenting about you know the pleasure that he he got from painting and then to realize you know over the course of a conflict nobody talks about art nobody talks about yeah. anything creative or beautiful all anybody ever talks about is survival and security and that was it and he realized i think all that has been missing and all that has been lost but also was saying things like don't underestimate what you've done here yeah. And you've come and you've asked somebody what their input is in Afghan, and there's not too many people who have done that. And his input, what I wanted to know was, well, what have you got to say about the conflict? And he went that nobody ever asked any of the artists. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever came and asked Afghan musicians to make work about what it's like to live in a in a country with a conflict that's been raging for so long. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever asked the sculptors, the painters, anybody. The end result was were these beautiful. I'm trying to give it my own view of them. They were, they were like from another era, but they were modern pictures of soldiers that were coloured in a way that made them look very from the late 19 or 1800s, early 1900s, and quite jaunting like that. That you go, what's this about? There's another link on the 
uh, a blurb for this podcast where you can see the actual photographs. How was it leaving him and the idea, the serendipitous nature of you finding this needle in a haystack must have just told you this is, I'm doing the right thing, you know, can't. I mean, that's just bonkers that you met the guy. Yeah, I, I knew it, but I also felt like, okay, I, this idea didn't care about me. This idea needed to be realised. Yeah. I've realised it now, okay, I can... And it was just when I came back, I was like, okay, I can get on with other things now. I can get on with the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so, uh, as if I can start the long list again. Um, but in, in her own inimitable way, she then has to see... You seem to have to come up with a new thing. In, in art, there, there's people who tend to find something and repeat. Yeah. Your work tends to zag off in lots of different directions. But Is that fair? Well, yes, but however, it's all been on one journey and that journey has very much always been around the limitations of photography. Okay. And if I had just been okay with photography when I was in Kenya, then I'd probably be sitting in front of you now as a war-hardened photojournalist. Yeah. But I realised that it has more lib- limitations than, than liberties and that how things are represented through the medium omit the subjective experience of the sitter. I take a photograph of you, you don't take a photograph of me, so there's an inherent imbalance. Right. It's a very different thing to be somebody that's gone in to cover something and other than somebody that lives through it. Yeah. Realising that in, in Kenya and becoming uncomfortable with photography led me then to make the work in Afghanistan, which talked about the limitations of the narratives that came back from, from mm. the conflict. And now that has led on to taking an image apart and putting it back together again so that it can be more subjectively expressive rather than just being a straight photograph. So after Afghanistan, there was the Comoros project, the Comoros Islands. The Comoros Islands, the islands of the moon where the the women are so astoundingly beautiful. It's ridiculous. So explain this, explain the Comoros Islands um, concept and where that came from and what you did. I was interested in migration and how the imagery of, of the immigration crisis in Europe was all alike. Boats of people in the sea or orange life jackets strewn along the shorelines of islands of Greece. There was very little imagery that um, showed where the people had come from, the families of the people who, who, have, who have gone and who have been left behind. So what actually happened was as I, I found out about the Comoros Islands and kind of a slightly similar story to here. They, they were colonised by France. There was a referendum in the 1970s about whether they would remain under the power of their colonial, um, their colonial ruler yeah, or they would um, become independent. Three <laughs> islands voted for independence. One island voted to remain with France. Yeah, so so there's a small little um, there's a small little island that's a um, Republic of France and a part of Europe out in the middle of the Indian Ocean what's been happening is is that so wait, people there's one island that's France and then the surrounding islands are all Comoros so they're all a separate country yeah and wow. the president I bet you I know which one is the wealthier <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's incredible but out of everywhere I've ever been in Africa this is like unspoiled Africa right. this is you know yeah so paint the picture we've had the picture of of, of uh, you know Nairobi we've had the picture of Kabul paint the picture of whatever 
place you arrived to. Arrive in Comores Islands. This is really funny because people people say to me, "Were you not worried?" And I was like, "No, I wasn't worried. I got on and a ferry." Me, <laughs> I was trying to get from the main island, Comores Grand, to this other island, Anjouan. And we got on a ferry and we were told the ferry takes 45 minutes. Seven hours later, I could see dry land. I mean, everyone's like, well, you're not worried. But I kept on going. I was on the, before we got on the ferry, there was all these guys going to Madagascar. And I know that takes 18 hours on the ferry. And I kept on going, did we get on the wrong ferry? Did we on the way to Madagascar? <laughs> my, my, my image when you say that this is the opening scene of Jurassic Park, is it something like that when they're flying in over this island? Is it like that? <laughs> a little bit. There's a there's a, there's a, there's a volcano on right. Comoros Grand, and then yeah, yeah there are volcanic islands. And um, but I mean, Anjouan is just unspoiled, beautiful. So you were trying to microcosm the, yeah. the European, you know, immigration problem in a smaller setting. So there's all these people from Anjouan trying to get into France, is it? Yeah, and right. coming from the other islands and other parts of East and Middle Africa, yeah. Central Africa. Are they not all going, oh, why do we all vote for, for independence? Or? Um, I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, however, um, life on Anjouan, while there mightn't be, you know, great enterprise and there mightn't be great opportunities, I mean, like, life is pretty nice there. And it's a beautiful island and it's known as the Perfume Islands. And I mean, like, it really is like the most abundant. Flowers and oh, I mean, beautiful it's beaches. And... Beautiful coastline. It basically just goes up in a big jungle like hill. And you, yeah. there's one road that goes around the island and you drive around it and right. there's a spiral around it. And it's, it's stunning. And the people are beautiful and there's great fishing and there's, um, there's farming, agriculture. There's just not an awful lot How to do. How did the people here. receive you? Were you an. an, 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 an Anomaly is yeah. I mean, like usually you'd go out to somebody if you were kind of one of the only white people, there'd be a bit of attention. Nobody paid any attention to us, right, right. and we were. I think we saw one other white person while we were there. Right. Um, nobody paid any attention to us, and people could not have been nicer. They yeah. really could not have been nicer. And we went around and we interviewed some families of people who have um, who have lost. Who, members of their family crossing over they leave in these little fiberglass boats at night I mean you saw the size of the boats and they cross this 70 kilometres of Indian Ocean and I mean like even when we were on the ferry some of the swell that kind of comes along and the size of the waves but they go at night because the military the French military really police Mayotte and so if they find your boat they'll send you back if you're caught getting off a boat and getting onto the island they'll arrest you and put you into prison and then deport you but many people have gone there and stayed for a very long time however the people and my aunts don't really appreciate all the, the other Comorians coming um, from the other islands yeah. but it is one of the only places in the world do, where they, feel, do they still feel the kinship of like they're all related yeah that's what I was going to say they're yeah. the same you know unlike the idea that there's this that Europe is like predominantly a Christian um, place and we're all white and um, yeah. Um, and now all of a sudden there's an influx of Muslims and, yeah. and people that speak a different language. There, everybody's This is like Irish people trying to bail up to Northern Ireland kind of thing, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the message that However, came there's no difference in religion. Everybody's a Muslim there. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. How different is that kind of uh, Islam than the Islam that you've seen in Africa and uh, Afghanistan? Or is it the same? It was funny because the, the fixer in Afghanistan was going, one of the greatest um, myths about Afghanistan is that we're really religious. We're not. Yeah. And when I was with the three men every day, none of them prayed. However, there is 
you know, cultural things like they don't touch women, which I didn't realize. And I was like slapping cream on the back, being like, thanks a million. <laughs> you know, and then by the time they left, they were like, you know, Barely shook my hand. But hand. they were, you know, we were, we were, yeah, we yeah. were friends at that stage. I mean, when you go to someone like, somewhere like Morris and you see Islam, you see it at, at its most beautiful. Right, meaning. It's respectful. People are respectful. It's not. There's nothing fanatical about it. Yeah. Um, we went into a mosque, met a couple of imams, and were you know greeted warmly. And uh, they sat down. They answered any questions that we wanted to. Brought us around the mosque, showed us. You know, it's a real privilege to be inside a mosque as a non-Muslim. Treatment of women. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, you see, um, it's a matriarchal society. Right. When I went and I, um, Suela, the young girl in in in, in outside Mombasa. I really wanted to know what life was like for Muslims yeah. and in, in a place where there was Sharia law. And yeah. I mentioned to you that I went to a wedding. Many of the women that I sat around and spoke with that night were second, third or fourth wives. And I asked them about, did they have any problems with it? And they were like, they would prefer to be the only wife. Yeah. However, everybody just tries to get along. But they have a graciousness about them when they speak about their religion and about what their religion means to them and about how it brings them together that I've never experienced within Catholicism. And I would come from a very Catholic family. Mm. Um, And I would see how they would, you know, even through Ramadan or just how they respect it. Is is that by choice or chance that the three major projects have been in Islamic countries or is that just the way no but I do have an interest in it you know it is the other world from the world that we know or feel comfortable about however I would find it a lot less extreme and I would find it a lot more empowering and a lot more beautiful than some of the Christian fundamentalists that are like being bred in the United States at the moment I would find that a lot more frightening yeah 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 have you landed here have I landed? You know, you've gone on this journey, as you called it. Is, is, is this, and then you could spend the rest of your career doing this kind of dye transfer work that nobody else is doing in the world? Or will you still say, I have to go to whatever the most violent thing that North Korea and photograph Kim Jong un? <laughs> Sean, you just give me an idea. <laughs> I don't you know think where that's these ideas just your lap. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be going to North Korea. Right. I think I think it's safe. However, what I would like to do is move back to Ireland at some point. Um, you have a lovely cottage on the farm. I have a lovely cottage on love. the farm, which I love, which is like my creative home. It right. really is. And when I'm there, I just have great ideas because I'm free from distraction of other things. What would you say to the younger? you who was desperate to get away from the farm I don't know other than have faith in the cycle of life because life has its own cycle and if you just relax and trust amazing things can happen and that goes for every aspect of it to you know to finding the job that's right for you to finding the partner that's right for you to finding the road that's right for you just trust Relax and trust. Jean Curran, that's a lovely way to end it. Uh, we always like to go out on a high message, but that was an extraordinary story. And I think if nothing else, for me anyway, it just shows how, you know, being fearless as well is another thing that I would say about you that I think is amazing. And you're, 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 you're so focused on your vision. There's too many people around these days who keep telling artists 
oh, don't do it that way, do it that way. But I'm, I'm a great believer in what you do. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast. Thank you for There'll having me. There'll be lots me. of links to Jean's work. Obviously, those of you who've got loads of money should go and buy some of them because artists like this get their next projects funded by their, the sale of their, uh, their works. Jean Curran, the best of luck. Thank you ever so much, Sean.